Hi, welcome to Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees, plus other useful things we found out about becoming a lawyer and the people that do. Hi, I'm Georgie. I'm a BBC Legal Apprentice. In one of our previous episodes, we spoke to Yamarikiji, a solicitor who specialises in representing people with complex medical negligence and personal injury cases. She's so passionate about helping her clients and talked about how important it is to work in an area of law that you really love. And the lovely Scott Halliday, an associate family law solicitor based in Leeds and London at Erwin Mitchell, seems to be doing exactly that. He's a family lawyer who works on a huge range of family law, human rights and LGBTQ plus legal issues. He was also recently named National Young Family Law Solicitor of the Year at the 2020 Family Law Awards. And honestly, I can't wait for you to hear this episode. I think it's absolutely fabulous. First thing we chatted about was how he ended up finding his niche as a family lawyer, because it didn't quite start out that way. When I started out and I was a student, I wanted to be a sort of grandiose international human <laughs> rights lawyer at the Hague if I'm honest with you uh, I had these I had these wild ambitions to go off and do sort of war tribunal claims I think for a time but then when I did my training contract vacation scheme and did some family work it became quite quickly obvious to me that I really enjoyed the day-to-day interactions with clients and I liked what it was about that in terms of from the outside world looking in, it might look like it's been planned and everything's gone really very smoothly. But there was a lot of self-torment that was going on um, for a number of years to try and get to that position. And I guess to some extent, I sort of got to a position where I understood that family law worked for me because I like the client work. I love the the law. I mean, it sounds quite strange, doesn't it, that you would enjoy the fact that people come to you in an unhappy situation. And that's not the point I'm making. I like the legal framework. I like the way the law in the area works. And I like being able to help people and support people. Um, but it was an evolution. It was an evolutionary process. I didn't immediately think, uh, you know, I, I'm not one of these people here. 12 or 10 was saying, oh, I must be a divorce lawyer. I'm super interested in what you're saying about um, what appeals to you about family law, because um, I, when I was, I think, probably about 14 or 15, did some work experience in family law courts for a few days and found it incredibly upsetting. I went away and thought I could, I could never do that. I could absolutely never do that. You know, the stories and the people, the way, you know, what was happening in people's lives was it's so so heartbreaking in case in some cases and also i think one of the things that i like about my job is that i can at the end of the day i can sit down and think when even when i'm getting really stressed i can think it's not that deep you know like my job i mean i it matters to me to do it well it matters to the organization that i do it well but it doesn't you know nobody is going to die if i do my job badly one day whereas you know, your job has a real impact. It has a, you know, it has a real impact on people's lives. And I'm really interested in kind of how that appeals to you and kind of how you manage that and kind of the different facets of, of that. I guess the correct answer would be, you know, I log on, I have my coffee, I work hard, I log off and I live my life and that's what we do. But it's not realistic. Um, no. I can't pretend to be that kind of lawyer. I'm not that kind of person. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, mm. I, I don't do anything. I don't do anything unless it's really hearty and felt. I mean, even trivial things. <laughs> so I guess in terms of how to balance it or how I balance it, I think the reality of it is family law work is 
factually complicated and the people that you're representing, your clients, are arguably at the worst point in their lives or one of the worst points in their lives, always. I'm not great at dealing with that, if I'm honest. I feel it for them, but I think that's what makes me a good lawyer. It always sounds a bit dramatic when you say it like this, but sometimes you just have to work really long hours week after week because you really care about the cases and that's what you need to do. And again, that sounds, it, I know that sounds a little bit twee, but it's it's realistic, I think. I don't think I could do the job and grapple with the facts if I didn't really, really care, if you see what I'm saying. How do you stay resilient when you have a you know a difficult case during a week and then you've got the weekend to think about it? I think there's probably two ways of looking at it from my personal perspective. Answer one is... You've got to accept that you won't always have great days in court or great client appointments because you're dealing with difficult issues. So you have to be more textured. Everything's going to be bubbling away. Nothing's going to be boiling, if you see what I'm saying. And I think if you look at it as freezing cold or boiling, you're going to burn out really quickly. The job has to just bubble. I guess probably all litigators will say this, but there are bad days. Don't get me wrong. Tough days, hard days. But if you plan and prepare and work really hard, the vast majority of the days should be good days. I guess the other slight answer to that would be, it depends what kind of work you're doing, because I'm interested in doing LGBT work, uh, whether it's public interest work, whether it's, and by public interest, I just mean sort of appellant court, somebody high court, court of appeals, Supreme Court, um, as well as LGBT defining clients on the ground, children, divorce, finances. That gives me a slightly different, a different outlook because I do those cases, but I'm also lecturing and writing about those issues. So it's not this sort of binary as I've gone to court and it's been a success or I've gone to court and it hasn't quite worked out. That element of the practice in terms of resilience, you, you wouldn't exist for more than five minutes if you thought, oh, well, there's, you know, 10 issues in the law that I need to solve. How am I going to solve them? You know, it's a, it's a process. You know, if I write an article about an issue of the law that I don't agree with, and I think it needs to be reformed, I'm writing it to put my views across and I'm writing to try and make change. But I'm not naive enough to think that that article itself will directly make change in that moment. So the resilience comes from a sense that maybe one day you'll look back and go, oh gosh, remember when that was so controversial and now it's so mainstreamed. And, and being part of that process. I'm finding what you're saying so interesting and really inspiring, to be honest. On the litigation thing, I did a litigation seat last year and I'd never really like appreciated that, like, and this is such a basic point, but the law changes. Like, I, I because I came in very much on a vocational route, I, I started doing my apprenticeship when I was 18 and I had no formal legal training at that point. And then I started doing my law degree one day a week and learning the academics alongside. I sort of hadn't really appreciated because I'd been doing it in practice. I hadn't really appreciated that, like, the law gets made and the law changes, which is pretty dense of me. But it just, it hadn't really properly occurred to me. <laughs> and it was when I was working litigation that I was like, oh my gosh, it's shifting, it's changing. And I think that idea of being involved in law and it, uh, at, like, I know it's such a cliche, but like at the forefront where it is changing is, a, I don't know, a really cool idea. And it's really, in, I don't, I don't know if I would always think of family law as the place where you could be at the forefront of something, but it's really interesting to hear that like that absolutely is the case. Again, I'm always conscious this sounds so twee and slightly corny, but I honestly don't understand how you could do the job unless you see the world in that yeah. way. The amount of ex the exhaustion and look, I, my clients are great. 
And the vast majority of them are good people looking for good, solid advice and you're advocating for them passionately and all the rest of it. But I could not do the job unless I did the other things as well. And that was always part of the plan. It sort of almost goes back to, if there was a plan, I guess, inverted commas, that sort of goes back to it in terms of the wanting to be the kind of international human rights lawyer at The Hague in that I always wanted to get to a position in my practice as quickly as possible where I could draw on my academic studies and my academic curiosity Mm -hmm. to inform how I actually practiced. If I'm honest with you, now I think that that does sound a bit corny, but it's true. And I also don't think my journey or route into the profession is particularly, in some ways it's very traditional, I guess, but in other ways it's not. But I'd done a lot of studying before I started. So before I'd gone into my training contract, I'd been a student for five, five and a half years. I'd done my undergraduate law degree. I'd done a sort of international summer institute abroad and I'd done some international politics and philosophy abroad. I'd then stayed on and done a master's degree in international human rights law and then done the LPC. And I kid you not, I mean, there were, there were times during those five, six years where I packed a suitcase on the Friday in one flat <laughs> or city and started the new course on the Monday. Yeah. You know, it was, it was just one course yeah. after another. So. I was really conscious that that was what I wanted my practice to be about if I could get there. You know, there's, there's got to be something bigger going on than clocking in, clocking out, doing what clients have asked. But for me, I know it's not for everybody. I know it's not for everybody. But for me, it just felt like there had to be more to it than that. I think this this feels like the pep talk I needed, Scott. I've been studying, struggling with my (laughs) studies recently, and this is absolutely the reminder that I needed. Um, You talk in such a compelling way. I think we sometimes talk about like bringing your whole self to work as kind of it's a phrase that we know, but we're not we're not entirely sure what we mean by it, and it's kind of a little bit, it's a little bit something but it's not necessarily sincere, but you talk about it in such a sincere and compelling way. And I'm sort of interested in the way that you, you identify as a gay man, um, the way in which that influences your work and the way the ways in which that it enriches your work. I grew up in the northeast in sort of working class seaside town, which I loved. I've got not a bad word to say about it. I, this isn't the story where I say I sort of freed myself from it, far from it. I love it. And I, I, I love going home and seeing family and friends and I, and I loved growing up there and all the rest of it. Um, but I had that about me in that I was a kind of working class kid trying to get into the law, I guess. And then on top of that, I was then, I then sort of discovered my sexual orientation, if you like, maybe when I was at university to some extent. Um, the reason I'm sort of fleshing it out in that way is, I guess I do bring my whole self to work or my authentic self, I think is the other buzzword that people sometimes use. And, and and there we go. But I guess I can't not. I mean, I could hardly pretend and say to you, you know, if I, if I told you, if I told you I grew up in, you know, on Kensington High Street, would you believe yeah. me with this accent? You know, seriously? <laughs> Sorry, um, Scott, I would. So I can't, I can't, I mean, yeah. much as I might like to think that's where I'm living yeah. now, you know, but, <laughs> but, um, but um, I certainly didn't grow up there you know I I I don't hide my sexual orientation and I'm comfortable in it and I want to bring other people along I mean again it's all a bit corny isn't it but I want to bring other people along and I guess I didn't necessarily have 
role models when I was starting out in the law. And I think as I got slightly older and realized how hard it is, that how tough it is uh, in terms of building a profile, building a practice, working those hours week after week, year after year, doing business development in practice, you know, liaising with numerous people. You know, the job asks a lot of you. And all I mean is, I think you have to accept, in my view, when you're starting out, whether or not you're sort of dropping into a training contract, whether you're doing something similar to what you were saying, where to sort of over a number of years, you're studying and working, whatever it is, you're being asked a heck of a lot. You know, what you're explaining with your training program and whatnot, there'll be times, I'm sure, when you think, gosh, I'm so exhausted by this. I know I want to get there, but it's exhausting. And yeah. and realistically, oh yeah, yeah. and so I just sort of think if you're going to demand that of yourself, or your employer is going to demand that of you when you sign the kind of metaphorical social contract and say, okay, I'll do it. Um, it is going to be, it's not even exhausting. It's going to be impossible to do that unless you just own to an extent who you are. And then I think, it, I think it helps you flourish. Um, you know, I, I, I think you've got to be comfortable, uh, in your mm. work environment and comfortable in yourself. You know, if you're working 50, 60 hours a week or you're working a full time job and doing lectures afterwards or whatever it is, you know, I just think it's tiring enough before you even start. Never mind trying to conceal elements of who you are. But there are clearly deeper problems and issues in that. I'm not suggesting that everybody walks in to law firms or private practice or whatever else and, and can sort of excel and do brilliantly. I think there's a much more nuanced conversation to be had around that. But for me, for me personally, that's just, that's just where I'm at. I like what I do. It absolutely exhausts me, but I don't know what on earth else I'd do. It's a really good way of explaining it, I think. And I, I hate to use this phrase completely, but it's a journey, isn't it? In some ways of, of kind of, for me, for example, I don't think I, I'm most myself now than I have been in my career, I think, in terms of at work, especially in kind of when you're in law firms that can be quite hierarchical and, you know, there can be quite formal environments where you're not necessarily as comfortable being yourself. And I definitely feel like I, now is, is, is peak me. I'm kind of being myself most, which is a good thing or a bad thing. You can take it as you will. It's absolutely a good thing, Kush. <laughs> Thanks, George. I needed that reassurance. Um, and I wonder for you, Scott, how did you manage to get there? Were there particular moments you found that were really good and bad or, you know, things go wrong? Did my law degree uh, at the University of York. And I guess that would be a big moment because um, I moved away from home. That was a big thing. And to be honest, there was a couple of years when I was at York where scholarships just kept, they just kept happening. And, and again, I'm, I'm really conscious that it, and not that it sounds twee, but it's all, it's almost embarrassing to be honest with you. And I think about it because I know that the scholarships are not that often given out. And I know that they're not very common and they're sort of really kind of golden tickets to, to, to different jobs and futures. But I was so, so lucky. Did you know where they were taking you? Did you kind of, was it ambition that led you to, to apply for these scholarships that were kind of one in a million and, and, you know, kind of your masters and things like that? Or what was it that, that made you want to do those things? <laughs> Probably desperation, to be honest. <laughs> um, I knew. <laughs> Who I could knew, afford a master's? I knew, I know, yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, I think the, if I'm honest, the driver for me was that I didn't want to stop I wanted to fluidly run through the education system. 
I was very, very conscious that I was a working class kid who apparently was doing quite well and was quite clever. I was acutely aware of my sexual orientation, which I was just sort of getting to grips with at university very in the early stages. But I was acutely aware that I had a moment in time. I think it was a genuine drive and a mixed in with a bit of desperation. And I, I, I genuinely, genuinely, I, I just thought I've got to keep going 110 miles an hour because actually this is a bit of a moment in time. I was worried about my sexual orientation. Maybe I, you know, would people take me seriously? I was worried about my accent. Mm. Would people take me seriously? Uh, I was 19, 20 years old. You know, I wasn't sure I had any real intelligence. Maybe I was just blagging, you know. So there was all of that going on. And I just remember at the time thinking really genuinely, you have really got to knuckle down and make something happen in the next couple of years because this is kind of your moment to piece it together. You know, on paper, York was a break. You know, it was a big break for me. You know, I could have stayed at home, gone to the local university, mm. which is very good, by the way. But, you, but, but, you know, stayed at home and lived that existence. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let me be clear. I'm not criticizing anyone that does that. But for me, mm. I don't think it was feasible to do that. Um, and once I was there, just genuinely can remember that sensation thinking, you've got this scholarship. This is absolutely ridiculous, but they've bought it. Do it. Make the best of it. Go for it. And, and one thing just led to another because once I sort of got the first break, I thought, well, if they've, if I've got one break, yeah. I've got to just keep going for it. What you're describing is like a real burning earnestness in kind of what you were writing in your applications and that kind of like absolute like I I think people can feel that they can fit when because um when I was applying for my apprenticeship I was absolutely buzzed to be there like I was vibrating with joy about the fact that like it had happened like I was 18 and I was working for the BBC like what (laughs) I kept just being like what a time to be alive Elle who um, is also presenting on this podcast we both started working at the same time and she'll tell you that that's why I just used to keep looking at her her and being like oh my gosh like what a time to be alive (laughs) and I think people can like really feel that because I think I used to worry a lot about like what would make you successful what would like make you good at your job and I think so much of it is like that earnestness of like caring about it and just like being buzzed about it being like having something in you that's like this is great this is what I want to do yes I I totally I totally agree I mean once I'd finished the undergraduate degree and I was doing the master's in human rights law I did some lectures at the law school in York on sort of jurisprudence, philosophy of law. And that's another kind of moment, like what you were saying, where I can remember doing a couple of those lectures to maybe a hundred students and thinking, I'm, I'm 21. <laughs> I'm 21 years old and I'm teaching a philosophy of law at a really good law school and they're paying and they're literally, they've paid for me to stay here to read. <laughs> And to write more papers, this, this, this is mind-boggling to me. Yes. You know, and, and I've got a room, and it's really nice, and I'm reading loads of things. I'm, I'm talking to academics. I'm drinking nice coffee around York. You know, this is a great life. Goodness me, this is so great. You know, and it's just trying to. It's you know what it is. It's trying to remember those moments as your journey goes on, but it's also trying to live in the moment. Like I genuinely remember thinking at that time, yeah. "This is great." It's exactly what you've said. It wasn't as if I was thinking, "Oh, I've got to get a training contract and I've got to qualify." And I would encourage nobody to think like that. You must enjoy the process to get there. 
Otherwise, totally. you're going to be very underwhelmed when you get there. And your experience might be different of this, Scott, but um, I think there's something in being growing up as a young queer person, not seeing very good, rep- well, not seeing a lot of representation of yourself, and just there being it being always presumed that you're going to be straight and imagining your life as if you were going to be straight. So, you know, I remember like my mum saying, don't chew with your mouth open because then your handsome prince won't want you. Plot twist, I don't want a handsome prince. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, that like you don't read that like you, but when you come into yourself and you, you, you're kind of realising your sexuality and that sort of thing, that you suddenly realise that like the life that you, you get to build your own life. You get to do exactly what you want. Um, and that like, and yes. you absolutely yes. get to choose it and yes. I think that that's one of the really positive things that because I think often when we're talking about um, being LGBTQ we talk about the hard things and the fact that people aren't always accepting or there's harassment or whatever but that actually it can be such a gift that you're already out of the swim of things so you feel this freedom where you're like I can do what I want because you know I'm already not the, in the normal yes, yes I really want to ask you about because you're based in Leeds aren't you yes so I kind of I was recruited in Manchester and I worked in Manchester for three years and I've been working in London for two years and I have this kind of tension in myself where I love Manchester and I'd like to live there but majority of the work within within the BBC and also I think within the legal profession still quite a lot is London-based and I just wondered whether you had any thoughts of it because you are clearly smashing it and are based in Leeds and are a really brilliant example that you don't need to be in London to have a really successful practice. Uh, I mean that's nice that's nice of you to say I'm not sure I'm not sure if I believe it but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll run with it let's run with it. Um, yes. I yeah. think I'm probably a hybrid because actually I'm not that dissimilar to you in what you've just described because um I worked in Sheffield for 12 months when I started my training contract. Then I was in uh, Leeds for, oh gosh, five, five years, four, four and a half, five years. And then just mm-hmm. before coronavirus, about six months before coronavirus, I did formally share my time between London and Leeds. So at least for six months before coronavirus, uh, although I look back now and I think, goodness me, it was a, it was a busy six months. Um, I was living in East London during the week and then usually traveling back up to London on a Friday afternoon. Uh, sorry. Up, yeah. Up to Leeds yeah. on a Friday afternoon. Up yeah. to Leeds. And then, up to Leeds. Yeah. Sorry. On a Friday. And then maybe back down to London very, very late Sunday, early Monday and do it. It just kept going like that for about six months. Um, Gosh, so you must have been tired. It was tiring. Yeah, it was tiring. It was tiring. Yeah. So, uh, it, and I'm not sure it's something that I necessarily would do again, if you see what I'm saying. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. I think what, I think the, the, the points to the question would be, at least for me, um, trying to link into different aspects of my my personality and who I am. Look, there's nothing wrong with working in a small law firm. There's also nothing wrong with working in a town or high street firms or um or, or going in-house in London or going in-house in a big city or whatever. You know, there's nothing wrong with anything. I'm not critical of anyone's paths or whatever else. But for me, as a gay man, I wanted to be in a big city. Um, yeah. I felt that was important to my life. Uh, I needed to be yeah. in a cosmopolitan place. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of my practice, I think it's also relevant in that I think you probably get a different type of client. So, so for what I do, for example, in in sort of uh, the the northern market, if you like, uh, in Leeds, I would do maybe cases in York or Harrogate. uh, And it might be that they're sort of more rural farming or maybe intergenerational wealth, you know, slightly more, uh, they're not even suburban, you know, rural clients, as it were. 
and then say in London, I'm representing people who are living in the States and fly, well, pre-COVID at least, flying over from New York to London or people who are working in really exciting jobs in London. You know, um, <laughs> so I've got very different clients is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And they're probably to an extent geographically tied. Um, having said that, I think you can do very well outside of London and I don't think you need to be in London to have a successful career. And I don't think people should necessarily think that you have to in some way incorporate London into your life to to, to be successful in some way. Um, Manchester is a, great. Uh, Leeds is great. Um, you know, Birmingham's a great big city as well. You know, there's other cities, of course, but you take my point. I have just, if I'm really honest, I've just gotten involved in what I care about and tried to make my name known. So if I wanted to meet somebody, if there was somebody at a newspaper or at Stonewall or at a university yeah. or anywhere, and I just thought, I need, to know, I need to know you, not necessarily for work, but just because yeah. intellectually I'm curious and I think you'll enhance who I am. Mm-hmm. I just phone them, email them, call them. I want to take you for lunch. I want to take you for a coffee. Can we meet? Um, or, or something. Absolutely. And also that like, you know, there's not one answer, is there? Like our careers are such a long time and I feel like there's such a pressure to be like successful. Like they, they've even got like 30 under 30 lists. Yes. A, how do they th- pick 30 people? I always feel like it should be like 70 under 70. It'd be much fairer. But anyway, um, uh that like you know our careers are a long time and we get to do a variety of different things with it um because you touching on that because what you've described there basically is like really good networking I feel like you've just given a masterclass in how to do really good networking (laughs) because I think you know it's a again it's another buzzword and I think sometimes it gets a bit missold. I think it, like fundamentally networking is just being interested in other people and being like nice and yes. friendly and yes. curious yes um and asking people questions about themselves or being really engaged in what they're doing you because you set up your own network haven't you you said well you were involved in establishing the Leeds lgbt network yes weren't yes you? yes so that was i think that maybe was three four years ago now but let me just say this what you described before about being inquisitive and caring about what people have got to say and being in enjoying that process of getting to know people mm. i think that's absolutely the, the a grade to networking but only thing I would add to that is to say, don't bother networking per se in circles that don't fulfill you. What on earth is the point in going to a networking space (laughs) with a group of people who you have nothing to share and nothing in common with? If there are other spaces you can permeate where you can exude who you are, if you're not keen on going into a room with 200 people where you don't know anybody, and thinking about it from a sort of intersectional point of view, okay? If you're sort of, I'm just making this up off the hoof, right? But um, if you're a young working class, male, female, whatever, um, person of colour, etc., and you're walking into a room, you think, right, there's lots of sort of middle class white men here. This isn't working for me. I'm not saying that you can never go into that space. And I'm not saying that you might not want to go into that space in the future, but there'll be spaces where your firm basically isn't really expressing anything. So spend your time finding those people. And then the conversation you describe happens so much more easily. It's hard Mm. work 
going to a networking drinks when you don't really want to speak to the people there. Spend the time working out who the people are that link to who you are and then go for dinner, go for coffee, go to their events. But my tip or advice for what it's worth would be work out the relationships that you want to maintain and make them work and and look at yourself through like different lenses. You know, there is certain networking I do overtly as a gay man, because it works in that space and it's a part of my identity and it's Mm -hmm. interesting and it provokes a conversation. I've gone to networking events with a glass of champagne or whatnot, and it's a very different vibe and it might be all about tax structures, offshore trusts, divorce, but that is also part of who I am because I'm a bit of a geek and I quite like it, (laughs) but I don't do one at the expense of the other. I do both in the measure that they require because I like the different conversation. So, Think, all I'm trying to say is think about who you are. And particularly when you're starting out, the reason I try to sort of press on the intersectional point is just own or try to own who you are. (laughs) You know, that's okay. Embrace it, you know, and try and find your niches and your personalities and your people as part of your networking. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that that to me was how I did it. You know, that's how, oh, that's how I've tried to do it. Because you, you, you've given lots of really, really good advice and particularly kind of showing how, how you've found your niche and kind of build credibility. But when you were 19, is there anything that you wish you'd known? Anything that you wish someone had told you to make your life easier now? If only someone had had a crystal ball so I didn't have to worry about it so much, that would have helped. That, I'm, 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 that thing, tongue in cheek. But I wish I hadn't worried about it as much. But you know what the problem is? There's, it's don't worry as much. But also, I don't mean that worry (laughs) because I think if you don't worry, you're not going to drive yourself to be the best version of yourself you can be. So it's, I think what I would probably say to myself is continue to worry, but remember that sometimes you worry too much. That's the best advice. It's not that you shouldn't worry. You should worry about anything and everything that means something to you, work life, personal life, whatever. But don't worry too much because there's a fine line between worrying in a constructive driving mm. way versus a worry that kind of holds you back or over or, or, or consumes you. And my advice to people would be, if you want to go into the profession, say you want to be a barrister, look at the chamber's websites. If you want to be a solicitor, look at the law firms or look in-house for training programs, etc. But believe what you see. If you look at a law firm's website and it's predominantly 55 to 65 year old white men, all of a similar size, shape, height, wearing the same tie from M&S. If that's not your worldview, they're telling you, they're telling you if they don't have an LGBTQ page on their website or they do and it's out of date, they're telling you, they're, they're telling you who they are. And for what it's worth, there is nothing wrong, you know, per se, with law firms having lots of particular types of people in. You know, I'm not, I'm not against kind of heterosexual middle-class men. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is law firms and chambers and companies and all the rest of it. If you're looking to get into the profession, believe the pre- companies, law firms spend a lot of time giving the world the, their presentation on their website and, and what they put out into the world lots of time and effort is put into thinking about that. So believe them (laughs) because if it's not there and you don't see yourself, that's because predominantly in my view, you don't exist in that firm. Now there's this kind of David and Goliath argument about you can be that person. Fine, live that, go for it. But the real politique on the ground is that's going to be really, 
really hard. So maybe try and find networks and people and organizations not, you know, that, that have other people that might be somewhat similar to you. That might be a better place to go. And if you make a mistake, you get a training contract and you find that it's that kind of very narrow construction, traditional construction, you know, work within it, take a deep breath, plot the next right best move. Do not drown in that world. Work out how to get out of it in a very constructive, sensible, collaborative, professional way. Do not compromise what you want to achieve because the people in the moment who you work with aren't your best friends and don't look and sound like you. Plot your way out and use the benefits of the firm, the chambers, whatever it is, the company. Plot your exit very constructively uh, to find people like you. That was Family Law Solicitor Scott Halliday. I loved hearing that again, Kush. I mean, he's just so passionate, isn't he? <laughs> oh, yeah, his passion really shines through, doesn't it? A hundred percent. Like about networking. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I've done a lot of networking where I just didn't really feel like I belonged in a particular room. Yes. Whereas he was saying, pick the stuff that interests you because that's when you'll be, you know, you're most engaging and you'll be actually genuinely asking people about what they're interested in because you are interested in it. And that's when you'll have the most success. And it made a lot of sense to me. Absolutely. I feel like the like thread that runs through everything that he's talking about is like, there's like a self-confidence in it and in, in a really positive way. And it's like the idea of like reciprocity between you and your employer or you and the industry that you're in that like yes it is very competitive and yes you know people really want training contracts or really want to get a job at a firm or really want to kind of find you know meet different people and kind of get a network but that it has to also work for you that you know it has to be the right fit for you and otherwise it, it it's pointless you know you, you need to enjoy what you do otherwise like you will get ground down so very quickly it's such a good point isn't it and those things that interest you will will obviously shine through um, and knowing what, what's important to you, what you like and what you enjoy will help in applications as well as kind of when you work and when you network yeah. and all those things. Um, and if you're not happy, I mean, how good was his advice about if you're not happy in where you work and the fact that you could be pragmatic, you know, just be professional, work there, work really hard, but plan your way out, get out of there as quickly as you can. Yeah, 100%. And I, um, I think my favourite thing that he said was about like enjoying the process mm. because I think... Like, like a lot of people, I think a lot about kind of the future and, you know, when I'm qualified and what that'll be like when I'm actually a lawyer and that sort of stuff. And actually, you know, my life is already happening right now and I I love my life. I love what I do right now and I need to kind of, it's a really good reminder of that and that there's no, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to magically change once I qualify and it's not kind of some totally different thing. Um, I just thought it was lovely. Yeah, it's such an important period, isn't it? Your training, when you're training up to qualify, it's like a seminal period in your in your life, I guess. So it's really important to enjoy it. So you're finding that you're now taking the time to appreciate what you're doing rather than just getting through it. That's what I'm trying to do. Because um, I do, I really, I do really enjoy it. And I think I, when I first started, I was very good at like really feeling how much I enjoy what I do. But stuff kind of, you know, you sometimes get kind of like a bit like caught up in the storm of being really busy or being a bit stressed or kind of having lots of different competing priorities on. And yeah, just a nice reminder to step back and be like, huh, this is interesting. This is nice. I do enjoy doing this. Um, and that, you know, some far off thing in the future is not going to, it's not going to massively change my life. It will just be kind of a continuing of my development. That's great. I'm going to ask you every day, Georgie, are you enjoying it? Are you, how is today? Are you happy? <laughs> 
That sounds really intense, Kush. Yeah, maybe a bit, bit weird. weird. Sorry. <laughs> Do you want me to ask it to like back at you, Kush? Are you happy? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're right. It's completely weird. Please don't do that. Really weird. I won't. Scott is the founder of the Leeds LGBTQ Diversity Group for LGBTQ professionals and allies across the Yorkshire region. We've posted details to it in our show notes. And if you'd like to find an LGBTQ network in your area, a good place to start is the LGBT and law page on the Chambers student website. And we've posted a link to that too. We'll be discussing networking and the work some groups are doing to mentor and support people coming into the profession and more in our upcoming conversation with Isaac Elwer, co-founder of the Black Men in Law Network. But next up is our long-awaited dissection of the SQE, the new solicitor's qualification assessment. It's going to have loads of super useful stuff. Don't forget to like, review and subscribe so you won't miss out on any new episodes and you can find us wherever you access your podcasts. We're also on Instagram, so do check us out. Just search Not All Lawyers Pod and use the hashtag Not All Lawyers. This has been Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees from the BBC's legal team.